Hello and welcome to the Ori Spotlight Podcast. We're talking to leaders across the cell and gene therapy industry and telling you more about Ori's mission to manufacture brighter futures. I'm Jason Foster, the CEO of Ori Biotech, and I'll be your host for today's podcast. Hello and welcome to the Ori Spotlight Podcast. This week I am joined by Phil Vanek. Phil is the CTO of Gamma Bio. Welcome, Phil. Glad to be here. Thanks for including me. Thanks for coming on. It's great to have someone with your breadth of experience uh, in cell and gene therapy on with us this week. Uh, and would love to start there, if you don't mind, kind of how you got involved in the field uh, and obviously in your, into your current role at Gamma, but also back historically, you've had a, a bunch of roles in the field at kind of Lonzo, GE, and other and CCRM and other notable organizations. So we'd love to hear a bit more about your career up until this point. Sure. I'm happy to go through that uh, without boring your audience too much. So yeah, <laughs> my story is fairly typical, right? I grew up in the time before cell phones and the internet, so I had to figure out a way to squander my time somehow. So I was kind of obsessed in, in, in a fairly typical fashion between sports and um, taking things apart, right? I needed to understand how things worked. So, you know, by the time I was five, I was taking TVs and radios apart, you know, much to the chagrin of my parents who kept asking me, you know, why doesn't this work? And I said, I, well, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, you know, sort of growing up in that day and age, you 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 kind of fill your imagination with all of these things. And I really had a tendency towards engineering and science. So um, this was also becoming the heady days of uh, cell and gene, well, not cell and gene therapy yet at the time, but genetic engineering, right? It was the Amgen in Genentech days, people were talking about how transformative this would be for medicine and for healthcare in general. So, you know, as somebody who liked to take things apart, I said, wow, we're taking DNA and genes apart and cells apart. I want to do that too. I want to take those things apart. So I ended up going, you know, I, I, I planned to study medicine as a lot of people of my generation did and I ended up sort of being pulled towards the bench. Uh, I studied chemistry and biochemistry and then went on to get my PhD in biochemistry and molecular biology. And uh, I think you're, you qualify as one of the kind of... Um Let's say the the statesman. I was going to say elder. I didn't want to offend anyone. Elder yeah, statesman. That's right. Of, that's right. You, of great gene therapy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've uh, had a couple guests uh, like Isabel Riviere and Bruce Levine and, and Anthony Davies, who I said that uh, you guys were in cell and gene therapy before it was cool. Yeah, it's it, yeah, that, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of people. The names you just mentioned are you know luminaries in the field. So I, I, I'm privileged to be considered even in, at, within that category. But so I appreciate that. But uh, yeah, no, a lot of amazing work has gone on. And, you know, I started my career, you asked about how I got into cell and gene therapy. It was almost, you know, accidental. I, backing up just a little bit, when I was in grad school, I found myself splitting my time reading uh, between science and nature and Harvard Business Review and MIT Sloan Review. So there was always this pull towards the industrial side. And again, remember, this is the days when if you went to industry, it was academia versus industry. So you were very much like, okay, if you go to industry, there's no coming back. Going to the dark side. Exactly, going (laughs) to the dark side. I use that analogy all the time. so, you know, that, that led me into life sciences, and I was lucky enough to work in a number of startup companies as well as larger established companies like Life Technologies, Becton Dickinson, um, Lanza, GE, and then got in, affiliated with. But my journey was very much through the sort of the discovery phases pre, you know, discovery phases, in, particularly in drug discovery. And drug discovery led me to, you know, technologies for how is a drug conceived constructed, 
marketed and, and, and ultimately administered to patients. So I, I became really almost, I don't want to say obsessed, but I was really interested in this doing something, not just sitting at the bench and researching, but making things real. So I ultimately got involved in product management, product marketing, M&A, business development, all of those things, which was about how do we take really innovative concepts and translate those into something that has a meaningful outcome at the back end. And then looking at that process and saying, well, how do we do it better, faster? And, you know, I started in, as I mentioned, in sort of drug discovery and screening tools and technologies, ended up with Becton Dickinson looking at uh, an analysis of cells. The cells led me to being really curious about how are people using cells? What's the purpose of a cell? Again, in bioprocessing, it was to manufacture proteins and antibodies, but there was this kind of sense that stem cells and cells on their own are productizable. So um, from there, I was lucky enough to join another colleague of ours, David Smith at Alonza. Uh, he brought me in to, to look at the cell and gene therapy manufacturing. And from that point forward, it was no looking back. It was just so interesting to be participating in the space at that time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, the um, vast sort of business world, you talked about the having a foot in the kind of business commercial world and in the scientific world. Um, certainly the business landscape knows uh, a fund the, the size of KKR and, you know, a uh, very well-known PE sort of buyout fund that's been around for, you know, 20 plus years. Um, I'm interested how sort of Gamma came about. You know, Gamma Bio, as I understand it, is a a part of of the broader KKR family, but with a very specific focus uh, and specific kind of niche within the broader organization. We'd love to hear more about not only how you came, how you got there, uh, but also how it was uh, how the concept was uh, was mm -hmm. initiated. Yeah, it really was the brainchild of KKR and a colleague of mine from GE, Matt Gunnison, who's the CEO and a partner at, at Gamma Biosciences. And I, I was working when I was at GE Healthcare. I worked quite closely with Matt in his capacity, not only with GE Ventures, but also as the, the head of business development for GE Healthcare and, and spot, basically spotting trends and where are the, what's the likely evolution of the GE life sciences tools platform, where is it likely to go, where are growth opportunities. And what we recognized even at GE and, and other large companies, and this is not disparaging their capability, but large companies are uh, often not very fast at innovating, not necessarily the, the place where uh, next generation technologies get invented. They certainly are where they ultimately land potentially or, or get commercialized. But um, I think KKR recognized that the the ability of the technology developers was not able to keep pace with the speed at which these therapeutics were advancing through the clinic and ultimately into uh, clinical practice. So it was, I, I think, you know, if you're thinking as an investor, you see a underserved high growth area and it almost becomes like, well, we should be able to through deployment of capital and bringing talent into these into the segment into a well-funded organization really accelerate that pace and make sure that you know disruptive platformable technologies do see light of day and do it in a time frame that is actually meaningful for the people who you know are, are so actively and and uh, loudly asking for these technologies so sure sure so tell me about, you alluded to it there, I'd love to dig a little bit deeper on the model. Uh, so it sounds like not only capital, but expertise. Uh, and we'd love to hear more about how that actually works in practice. 
remarkably how similar our vision and mission statements are. You know, we really believe that, um, you know, the barriers between a therapeutic concept and a curative medicine are, you know, there's many of which manufacturing is one of them, but manufacturing should not be a barrier to adoption and progression uh, of these therapies. So, you know, we think that manufacturing technologies and solving the problem of, of cell and gene therapy manufacturing will go a long way into making these therapies accessible to patients around the world. Yes. Um, our thinking behind that was probably two or threefold. We started thinking about, look, there's good technology assets that are available in the market. If we bring them in, repurpose them for and apply them to cell and gene therapy, there's certainly going to be an opportunity financially uh, as well as a benefit to the community that, that we serve. Mm. The, but we did at first think about them as sort of pockets of technologies. What problems are we trying to solve? Mm. And early on, we started to say, well, look, let's take more of a systems approach. Let's look at manufacturing paradigms today. And let's peel that back and say, well, you know, where, what are the challenges? You know, cell engineering, uh, cell intensification, culture intensification, how many cells? And this is all, all these conversations are taking place at a time when we couldn't even define a dose of a living drug, right? It's like, well, how many cells do you need? You, you would probably been in the same situation, right? You'd yes. go out and say, well, we need to make these num this number of doses to solve or uh, serve this particular indication. And we'll say, well, but what's your dose? And I'm like, well, it's this today, but we don't really know. As many as we can. <laughs> How many yeah, so do you want? As many as we can get. <laughs> yeah. So you, you've heard me say this probably many times at conferences or just in passing, which is yeah. the industry was building the plane while we were flying it. We had mm. no idea, you know, what are the technologies? You know, back in my Lanza days, we were still having the debate about allogeneic versus autologous and build versus buy and what are the mm -hmm. best processes. And, you know, seven, eight, nine years later, we're still having those same conversations. I was say. That's not, you know, we, we, we have to get to a point, and, and uh, this I'm passionate about, is we have to get to a point where we can attend a conference that talks about a gene, cell and gene therapy, and manufacturing is not even raised as an issue anymore, right? Imagine that world. So I'm giving away a little bit of, of a spoiler alert for my, for my answers later, but uh, I, we just have to be able to get there. Indeed, indeed, and yeah. you know, as as you know, and as you said, our Ori's mission and, and yours are very well aligned, which is essentially democratizing access. We need to bring these products to patients at scale, yeah. or else, what are we doing here? You know, what, what good is having a cure for cancer if patients can't get it? Uh, and that's really Absolutely. eight or nine years after <clears throat> those conversations are still, unfortunately, the conversations we're having today. Yeah, and, so, and certainly, you know, you've had conversations. This is for patients around the world. This is mm. not a, you know, this is not a, a, a modern Western world issue. This is we have to make these accessible for everybody. Um, yeah, absolutely agree. So, tell me how kind of in the so gamma is two, three years old? How, how old are you? Yes, it founded at the end of 2019, so we're about two years-ish. Okay. You know, I use that scientific that term, ish. ish. To, yes, yeah. indeed. Um, <laughs> it's okay, I'm not a scientist, so I understand ish. Um, give us a couple examples, if you would, of the companies that you partnered with and kind of where those technologies fit, you know, in your kind of overall thesis for what the industry needs. Yeah, so as I mentioned a moment ago, when we were looking at technologies, we, we did take a very process level approach to look at, okay, cell and gene therapy manufacturing, everybody's talking about it, we believe in the opportunity, w where are the, some of the pain points? And 
if I think back about some of the investments we made early, you know, we invested first in a company called Astrea. It was formerly called Prometic Bioseparations. And you'll hear me use this terminology a lot, describing our companies with their superpower, right? Because mm. they have to have something that differentiates them. They have to be platformable, scalable, and they have to concurrently solve a, a problem that exists today, but potentially be disruptive or have that, you know, have this capability that will apply for what we think years to come. So a, a right. future proof technology. So Australia's superpower, I mean, it was a, a chromatography business for, you know, conventional proteins, immunoglobulins, the, you know, the, where the market existed at the time with really no focus in cell and gene therapy. But mm. um, with their ability to define and develop uh, affinity molecules, and their success historically in making an affinity ligand for an AAV molecule, you said, well, you know, they, they have all the, the resources, the skill set, the infrastructure to actually really go and address advanced uh, gene therapy manufacturing, whether it's lentivirus or AAV. Mm -hmm. So that was one of our first investments. And then we said, well, okay, well, what are the other problems with conventional chromatography? They're largely resin-based or filter-based or monolith-based, and none of them are really solving the problem of advanced therapies. Advanced therapies are very large and fairly labile, right? That in processing, they can come apart easily because they're complicated, they're complex. Right. So we leaned into another company, which was an electrospun nanofiber, which effectively solves two problems, porosity of the material as well as uh, surface area. So you start to play with new materials that can be disruptive, highly scalable, it, it was really a, a way of rethinking how these technologies could be deployed. So that's a product that we'll be launching shortly. We've got some pretty interesting preliminary uh, results on lentivirus. We're obviously going to apply it to all of the advanced therapy modalities. So that's an example of how we thought about things. From there, we, we kind of did a, almost a rinse and repeat strategy. Where are the other gaps in the industry? Cell selection. We leaned into a company, Biomagnetic Solutions, that solves a lot of the uh, cell selection challenges. We looked at a company, Miris, because we believe firmly that people will be engineering cells for years to come. That's not going to go away. It's not going to slow down. So we wanted to have a competence or a capability, a quote unquote, superpower in the ability to deliver materials into cells. The fact that the business also has a lot of what we call lipid nanopolymer complex or LNPC as opposed to mm -hmm. LNPs. Um, they've got a lot of in vivo gene delivery expertise as well. So you can certainly play in that other advanced therapy realm of RNA, mRNA, siRNA, and the rest. Um, and again, not to, I won't go through our entire portfolio, but each of those we looked at where are some of the core challenges in production and how can we bring technologies that are platformable, scalable, serve the RUO to GMP market, and ultimately will you know, be very durable in the market. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, because it's, uh, we've discussed before, it's not really traditional PE, uh, you know, kind of the way PE generally invests um, in maybe driving efficiencies or putting pieces together and, you know, more of a financial uh, approach and or it's not really VC either, right? It's not, it doesn't sound like yeah. you aren't necessarily betting on technologies before they exist. So there's sort of a, a hybrid there. Maybe you could describe you know, the kind of criteria you use to select these kinds of investments. Yeah, that, that's a great um, commentary and a great observation, right? That, that the KKR clearly recognized that 
you know, we are not a venture investor. We don't lean into things. We don't take minority investments. We we typically are not there along for the ride. We are there to um, invest heavily, uh, drive technology, drive progress, drive product into the market. But because this is part of the healthcare strategic investment arm of KKR, we did have a few more degrees of freedom than, you know, a tr- very traditional private equity. Mm-hmm. Now, what that's done for us is when the market was particularly frothy, you know, we used our network to identify assets and, and companies that we thought could be disruptive. What we were looking for, though, it, this was not a highly speculative investment we were trying to take. We were looking for um, opportunities where the technology was largely de-risked. So we knew the technology worked. It worked to the specifications we felt were necessary for them to be successful in the market. Um, But what they needed was growth capital. They needed uh, perhaps people who've also sort of have a network in this community that would kind of redirect those efforts to solve real world problems in creative ways. So, yeah. Yeah. It's kind of refocusing that that application into areas of of your expertise that you where you saw opportunities. It's, It's a unique model and super interesting. And I think you've seen you know, others like what they see. I think with you guys are, what do they say? Imita- imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. I think there's other folks that are thinking about potentially doing things this way as well. And you see bigger PE houses mm-hmm. reaching down and trying to figure out, well, how do we play in this field? Everyone thinks it's interesting, but people aren't exactly sure how they're going to play. Um, and a question I hadn't anticipated asking, but given sort of the comment you just made there, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, given the current environment, we're here in the kind of back half of 2022, there's been, a significant retrenchment in the, the public markets and also private market investment. What kinds of things are you seeing? Um, you know, w- what are the dynamics maybe that are a little bit different than they were when, when they were frothy, as you, I think is the word mm-hmm. you used, but when there was a bit more um, of that capital splashing about around these opportunities uh, over the last couple of years? Yeah, I think the observation that we've seen even in the last six months and, and sort of what people are setting themselves up for, um, it was kind of the, there, there, there was, multiple dimensions to the to the to the situation or the environment covid certainly had an impact so there was a lot of um, reallocation of resources towards covid and now what did that do Uh, it gave a large number of companies a lot of capital to work with to invest in new technologies right so there was definitely uh, mobilization of capital and we kept hearing the question you know how much of your revenue how much of your revenue growth is going to come from the COVID bubble and how much is going to come from, you know, pure play bioprocessing and advanced cell and gene therapy manufacturing. For us, almost, you know, we had very limited, if no, almost no exposure to the to the the COVID. So we had a, built a foundational high growth business in the absence of that. Um, when the IPO market or when the public markets started to retrench and close, and obviously, you know, valuations of these companies definitely did see. On the therapeutic side, a lot of, you know, <laughs> focus on assets, focus on prioritization within the portfolio of, of those, uh, and, and probably a little bit of cooling down of um, a bit of the cooling down of the enthusiasm because people were saying, okay, well, we're going to take a company, we're going to grow it, develop it, and our exit is clearly on the public market. So I think right now people are rethinking that. Um, mm-hmm. and, and then I guess the other thing that, that was certainly happening is as folks were, as investors, were looking at uh, opportunities in the market. Yeah, there was certainly that uncertainty of the future and where is this, where will this play out? 
And I think where we landed is that, you know, people became a little bit more, I don't want to use the term responsible, but a very, you know, much more interested in, in technical diligence and making mm -hmm. sure, okay, uh, we were hearing a lot of, oh, we're going to buy, we need to buy, we need to get in there, we have to be part of the process. Now it's sort of like, we need to be part of a process, but what process should we be part of in terms of mm -hmm. the investments we're undertaking? Yeah, a bit more discipline kind of re-injected re back into the into the market and the process. Yeah, for sure. And it doesn't mean that there's not there's great technologies out there, and there's certainly a lot of capital available for investment into the right technology. So I don't think that's necessarily going to hinder the tool and technology players in the space. Um, but it's certainly changing the posture of, of investors, I think. And what I would imagine also is that there's been a little bit of a, a flight to quality. You know, it's sort of the both on the investor side and on the investee company side and that, you know, you, you need expertise uh, or you want expertise. Everyone says they want to be a value added investor or they bring value beyond the capital. Um, but when times get tough and capital gets tight and markets get tight, it's even more important to be able to deliver expertise beyond the capital. That's critical, right? Yeah. Um, because there are a lot of technologies that if you're not in a position to really understand how they play today, but how they might be part of the manufacturing future, it's really difficult to sort of make bets and make it, you know, and, and again, it's, you know, the amount of risk that people tolerate is definitely changing. So yeah. I think that's well said. I uh, would love to talk a little bit more about the industry as a whole and what kinds of innovations you're seeing in cell and gene therapy specifically that are they're getting you most excited. You know, what kind? What are the areas that you think require innovation most urgently? Uh, we talked about manufacturing broadly, but even within the subset of manufacturing, interested in your view there. Uh, but also, you know, what other types of technologies are do you think are most of interest, even if they're not investable from a gamma perspective? I'd be curious, mm -hmm. we, we, you with your finger in the pulse of what's happening out there in the innovation landscape. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I I'll borrow from a colleague of mine. Um, you know, who says at the end of the day, the, the the value of the therapy is in its durability, its ability to sort of have its therapeutic effect in a wide patient population. So if you start with potency kind of at the core of everything that will drive the industry forward and then work backwards from there, well, how do you um, how do you engineer potency into a cell or how do you identify the cells with the appropriate potency? How much then does a dose require to have that therapeutic benefit and therapeutic effect? So if you kind of connect the dots between all of those things, it's I think that it's twofold. We we largely subscribe and are immersed in an industry that is highly reliant on bioprocessing technologies from oh well that's what I said you know bioprocessing technologies as opposed mm. to cell and gene therapy manufacturing technologies. So. If you talk to people in the industry, I'm sure you've had these conversations. You know, everybody is cobbling together a process to get their therapeutic manufactured to get it out to the patients. But each of those unit operations within that workflow are borrowed and typically are suboptimal for what we're trying to do. Yes. So going back to my comment about potency, where people are starting to explore, and Ori is a great example of this, is looking at you know, forget the single unit operation. You know, it, you've got to think about what is the system's view of what we're trying to deliver. We're trying to deliver a starting raw material, get the right cell, engineer the right cell, 
collect and process and package the right cell to get it back into the hands of the clinician who will administer it to his patient as quickly as possible, as safely as possible, and as, honestly, as routinely as possible. It has to not be an art. It has to become a manufacturing process, right? And that has to be done under sort of all the regulatory conventions. But at the same time, this is an industry that is absolutely ripe for disruption because uh, the, the technologies we have are great. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about sort of what I think that, you know, a lot of that's mobilized by we gotta, we've got to keep things moving. We don't have the luxury of changing, but change in a process is very difficult. Once a methodology is designed in, disrupting that is something people say is, well, that's for your, that's for your next indication or your next clinical asset. So, you know, I think between systems thinking and then avoiding the, well, this is the way we've always done it, so you have to do it that way, are the two things that is, are evolving quickly in the industry. Yeah. And another thing I would say, I would agree with both those points and also the willingness of the various players to collaborate, mm -hmm. uh, I think, is at its sort of peak, at least since, since I've seen it. Usually it's all very proprietary and no one wants to tell anyone anything. Uh, but we've realized that, you know, it's going to take a village here to get to solve these sort of significant challenges and demonstrate the, you know, the commercial use case for cell and gene therapy um, and the fact that we can serve patients at scale. So what's your view on on these sorts of collaborations and partnerships? You start to see more and more of these announcements, public-private partnerships or, you know, cross-providers where they're going to combine their know-how or their technologies and, and try and think collectively about how they can solve a, a broader set of problems. Yeah, twofold. You know, one is the technology effect and one is the skill set effect. No single company has the monopoly on the most talented scientists. I always tell our team that, you know, technology envy is a good thing, right? You see somebody else with a technology like, geez, why didn't I think of that? That's brilliant. It's simple. So I, I think because of the pace of the industry, uh, it, it's demanding that people get out of their silos, get out of their own way and try to figure out innovative ways. Because honestly, a therapeutic developer does not care one way or the other about, you know, what brand technology they're using to make it. All they care about is getting a safe therapy into, into their That's patient. Right. If we're, if we're collectively solving that problem and we can do it faster together and people are willing to put, you know, intellectual property aside to some degree or find ways of exchanging that, that that information and also just accelerate the pace of these therapies it's going to have a tremendous uplift effect for the entire industry so it, it serves everybody and i think people see that the trick is is how do you manage those effectively and then how do you figure out which are the relationships that can actually be productive and as you probably appreciate the most productive partnerships are when there is buy-in at the all levels of the organization that this is good for us um, yes. and you know obviously the, the the organizational momentum behind them to get them done quickly for sure yeah i mean some of our most productive partnerships thus far in our evolution as a company you know with companies like germ free or gcon where they have mm -hmm. unique expertise that is you know wholly complementary to what we're trying to do trying to add flexibility you know at lower the cost of entry um, helping therapy developers overcome that you know, massive investment up front at risk they often have to make to even get the capability to manufacture. People with like, you know, TrackCell or others on the data side where we're able to integrate and provide new insights uh, into what's happening vein to vein um, and these kinds of things where, 
you know, we have to work with the best of breed partners uh, around the ecosystem. We're not going to solve this problem ourselves. We realized that from the very beginning. Uh, but one, one point that you made earlier I'd like to just reinforce because I think it's so important is to say, you know, today's solutions um, or, you know, today we're trying to solve today's problems with yesterday's solutions. We're, we're repurposing, you know, things that have grown up in stem cells or transplantation, transplant medicine or biologics and trying to shove those square pegs into those round holes. And it's not really working. One of the things that was when I was looking at, at uh, Ori as, a, as an investor that struck me was that this was a bespoke solution. The innovation was uh, delivered specifically to address the problems of cell and gene uh, therapy manufacturing. So Farland, who you know, and Chris Mason, mm-hmm. you know, sat down and really thought long and hard about what does this particular industry need and how do we bring that innovation to this industry? versus taking kind of what was out there already, uh, which I think is a, something we need more of, and we need to see more and more of that happening across the industry. I couldn't agree more. I think, you know, it's, it's, as a systems thinker, you always have to think about, well, okay, a starting point is how we do things today, but then always asking the question, well, why do we do it that way? And if there's no fundamental reason to do it. I, I, I loved Elon Musk had a, a, uh, a interview on on. on uh, on the internet. And it was really interesting because the key takeaway for me was, you know, engineers are really, really good at optimizing individual unit steps or steps of a larger process when they really should be thinking about removing that process step entirely. (laughs) And unless you're willing to get out of your conventional mode of thinking, which is, okay, let's look at the processes that exist today and continually improve, 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 improve. I think what Farland and Chris had done rightly so, is to say, well, why, you know, why are we even doing that? Do we need all the steps here? And, you know, I've spent a lot of my career in process development, and that's exactly the approach you take. Somebody comes with a process, which you'll appreciate this comment, it's always bulletproof, right? It's one guy who knows how to do it perfectly, but it's the best process, right? And the first thing you do as a process developer is start asking, well, why do you do it that way? Why are you doing this step? Because at the end of the day, a successful manufacturing process has to have as few interventions, as few steps, and and make it as simple as possible to achieve the CTQs that you want on the output side. That's it. So why do we do it? We do it because we've always done it, but we've got to stop that thinking. Yeah, yeah. Farland always used to say that, you know, really, worry is quite simple. I would say there's a lot of elegance in that simplicity. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's important. Um, Tell me a little bit more about uh, how you're seeing the role of digital uh, coming into the industry. One of the things that I talk a lot about and sort of with the team internally and externally is we can do our job fantastically well delivering new manufacturing technologies into the market that speed up some of those you know unit operations we were just discussing and streamline them and maybe eliminate a few. But ultimately, one of the bottlenecks that isn't going away uh, is the quality, uh, the QA and QC process at the end. Mm-hmm. If, we're, if we continue to do that manually on paper, there's no way to get, you know, batch releasing of, of tens of thousands of doses. Uh, at, you know, we, we will just sort of run into that bottleneck, no matter how good we are uh, upstream of that. So one of the use cases we're exploring and really trying to understand is what does it take to do continuous validation, you know, uh, batch release by exception processes, what kinds of data, how much data, what quality of data are required. Uh, to do that, but I'm interested in your view around the importance of digital moving forward. You know, to accomplish some of these big ambitions that we have as an industry. Yeah, I think you you said the words release by exception, you know, quality by exception. That that is a critical driving 
force for the industry. It's how do we, um, you know, how do we build processes which are automated to the extent that they they, sh- they should be, and there's no reason why we can't. With the data integrity and the sensing ability, process analytical sensing in the process, so you're getting the appropriate readouts through the entire workflow, that a batch record gets created automatically. And if the digital system says this is acceptable, this is fine, everything was within the established parameters, there were no deviations reportable or otherwise, then the product should be deemed safe, right? If it's mm. closed, contained. So I think that as a as a driving force for the business and saying, well, what, what are the barriers to getting to that point? And you've you've hit them on the head, right? I think the understanding the chain of custody and the chain of quality from the starting material through to the final product that's that's manufactured, whatever the manufacturing process, hmm. Th- that is low hanging fruit for the industry. And there's a lot of companies that sort of play in that space. It's then starting to integrate process analytics and automation. So you can take out human factors, right? You can remove data entry, you can remove multiple data entry. I was talking to, this is a number of years ago, uh, speaking with a large clinical center and they, you know, admitted they had 15 different systems to get from a, you know, whether it's Epic patient records Mm. and manufacturing execution systems and quality management systems. It's crazy. So they all need to start to talk to each other. But most importantly, if people are focused on how would we, how might we execute a release by exception paradigm what are all the pieces that plug into that i think that's how we would think about it and when we've leaned in on a couple of process analytical technologies that we think will play a large role in that in the future yeah it's a great uh area maybe to explore a bit further because one of the areas we see the biggest gap is in that inline atline analytics being able to better understand what's happening in the process you know we and the autologous world we take a variable, inherently variable starting material, you know, your cells or my cells, and they behave differently in different environments. Uh, And then we put them through what is supposed to be a consistent process. Uh, But you put a variable input into a consistent process, you're going to often get a variable output. Uh, And we don't always know why it's variable. The the causality is very hard to determine. Um, So these kind of in-process technologies being able to read these uh, data and, and parameters in real time and understand what they mean and then react to them is one of the biggest gaps, I think, uh, currently facing cell therapy. So I'd love to know your thoughts on where where we might be able to have the biggest impact with some of those things and who's doing interesting work in this area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so if you parse that out into sort of what the requirements would be, right, if you're trying to write a specification for what the ideal process analytical tool would be, and so start with the sensor. The sensor has to um, have high dynamic range. It has to be able to read in the environment that is being deployed, whether it's a bioreactor or a downstream purification um, output. Mm-hmm. And it has to analyze, have high, uh, and, and the results have to be, the data coming off of the sensor has to be analyzed in a time that is meaningful for the biology, right? So as cells are expanding, if you're reading out glucose, for example, in a bioreactor, you want to have something that's reading glucose and other metabolites, but that also it doesn't take 
hours to get the results and then says, okay, we need to bolus the bioreactor with some glucose. <laughs> Three it's hours too late. <laughs> so generally, like in speaking more conceptually than specifically, um, technologies that can read out multiple times per second can be deployed in a touch-free way. So it's not um, necessarily entering a closed system <laughs> or can read at distance or be single-use disposable and thrown away with the, with the bioreactor. Um, as well as providing meaningful data that is unambiguous. It has to be able to differentiate analytes from one from the other. So there are tools and techs. I know people have been looking at Raman spectroscopy. The challenge with Raman, really hard to execute, very expensive, and takes a long time to get the data. So it doesn't really satisfy the needs of a process analytical technology. No. Uh, shameless promotion, we've, we've invested in a company called Neuron Technologies and Neuron uses a uh, highly sophisticated laser system um, and a signal processing to bring near IR um, spectroscopy into a bioreactor and read out in real time. So we can do, you know, tens to hundreds of readings per second against glucose, against lactate, against some of the other metabolites in a bioreactor, and then use that information in a fairly unambiguous way to actually feedback and control a bioreactor. So it's early days, but that's the type of technology we're interested in. Likewise, it's tunable, so we can look at a lot of a wide variety of analytes, including things like protein concentration, as well as uh, um, ancillary materials that might be present or, you know, excipients that are in a, in a final formulation. So it's pretty widely deployable, but uh, uh, also is pretty interesting. And there's other technologies out there that will also satisfy those types of readouts. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, that's super interesting. And, you know, one of the things we sort of scoured the landscape for potential sensors of, of the like ilk you just described that had the ability to, you know, be reliable and, and to read out with a frequency. And there aren't that many right now. Mm -hmm. The type of there's ones not. that we want to use uh, certainly or could use. There's just not that many to choose from. And, and then there's the next step, which is once you capture those data, um, how do we make sense of them? You know, it's yeah. kind of a journey that we talk about uh, is going from data to information and then mm -hmm. information to insight. Uh, and that's yeah. it's a, quite a journey to get from one point to the other. We don't even really capture the data, the data in a structured, you know, digital way right now. So let's start there. Uh, but being able to apply, you know, advanced analytics, maybe it's uh, machine learning algorithms or mm -hmm. AI or something that can actually tell us what does this mean and then what do I do about it uh, is, you know, the next – is, is the not-so-distant future, I would say. You know, you see these yeah, types of yeah. technologies being applied across, you know, all kinds of data sets outside of, of, of biopharma. But it's something that because of the almost limitless variability of a living medicine that we need to – think about quite carefully and, and apply it quickly, I think, to get mm -hmm. to the point where, where you just described where we really understand those those critical quality attributes that are driving, you know, the results yeah. that we're seeing. Yeah, two data points on that. I, you know, during my tenure at GE, the big, you know, one of the big uh, strategic imperatives was digital twins, right? Our aviation division of GE 
was collecting billions of gigabytes of information, you know, annually on jet engines and building these very sophisticated models. And those models then became these, you know, highly experimental or, or experimentalizable. That's not really a word, but I made it up. It, meaning <laughs> that you could mean. sort of interrogate a mechanical system and ask questions about what if we change this? What if the airflow worked in this way? Right. And, and I, I remember talking to somebody at Mind AI at one point saying, well, you know, it's great in the Newtonian world and engineering world where things are highly predictable and you know this effect always leads to this right or this this right. cause leads to this effect and by, and and I asked the question well you know biology is so much more complicated and 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 his response was yeah but we'll get there because within that you know within the complexity of biology if you break it down and anybody who's looked at the you know the the sigma biochemistry chart right of all the different biochemical pathways in the body Mm -hmm. can look at that and say, well, that looks a lot like circuitry, right? So if you can predict individual parts of that circuit, why can't you predict the whole? So if you if you sort of extrapolate that, the, the digital twin notion is not that crazy for biology. We're probably years and years away. And one of the biggest obstacles for that is we, we, we don't have curated data to inform the learning set, right? So we'll, we'll get there. You know, it's, I always used to make this joke when I'm talking about it, we can get there, but we, we're still in the days where, you know, you, you, you poke a frog, it sticks its leg out and we go, that's cool. Why did it do that? And everybody's going like, I have no idea. <laughs> so it's the same thing. We do something to a cell, something happens and we're going, okay, what does, what does that mean? Right. There's no shortcut. We have to curate the data to get the sets to actually be able to figure out, but do, will we have a digital twin of a cell in the, in the next 10, 15, 20 years? Probably. Look at the Mind AI data from a couple of weeks ago or a week ago saying they have predicted the folding of every protein that's been fed into the system. Yeah, That's a great start, right? It really is. So it, it, it's definitely doable, but it's still in the realm a little bit of science fiction at this point in time. Yeah. No, I think you're right. And it's, I very much hope it's 10 years away, not 30 years away. Uh, yeah. you know, I think, yes. You know, yeah, given the advances we've seen in computing and, and all the other things mm-hmm. that have happened in the ex- external world, we should be able to bring some of those learnings in to the world that you and I play in all day long, every day. So, um, speaking of kind of the latest, the latest technologies, what, what things are most exciting either on the biological side, the therapy development side, doesn't have to be sort of technologies necessarily as we've been talking about them, but you know, one of the things that, I've talked to to Isabel Riviere about and others is that, you know, there's really a need, I think, for us as an industry to demonstrate the commercial case, the ability to serve patients at scale. Uh, mm-hmm. And if we don't, we're at risk of being sort of written off as a, as a fantastic science project that, you know, we were able to cure a few patients, but it just never really worked uh, you know, with all the capital flows that have come into the industry and, uh, ultimately, we need products that can be covered, that can be delivered to patients, um, that can do what the you know what we can achieve the clinical benefits that we're trying to achieve, uh, and that's going to take a lot of innovation across uh, across the whole industry. So, what kinds of things are you seeing, you know, either on the biology side or the technical side or others that that really gets you excited about the advancements that the that the space is making currently? Yeah, I think I'll I'll point to an economic side almost, right? So uh, Sarah Nikafaro presented at ISCT and showed some data from CIBMTR, so the data repository of the bone marrow, blood and marrow uh, transplantation. And mm-hmm. one slide she showed that was really compelling is over the last four years, the number of patients that receive a CAR-T in the absence of an HCT, uh, hematopoietic cell transplant. 
-hmm. And the number of folks that are bypassing an HCT process and going straight to CAR-T tells you that we're now entering a market reality where certainly demand is going to outstrip the capacity to invent, innovate, and process. And remember, if we're largely focused on hematopoietic malignancies today, it's a very small percentage of all the cancer cases that persist throughout the world. So imagine, and this is what I'm excited about, the fact that we're, we're, we're getting traction from the clinical community that will put a lot of pressure and I think it'll put a lot of pull into the market for, you know, continue to push these therapeutic uh, developments. And we're just, you know, we're, we're talking about one therapeutic class, right? Oncology as a therapeutic class of, of activity. You know, there's inflammation, there's infectious disease, there's all these yeah. other challenges that we, that we face as, as a world community that could be addressed by these types of therapies. And as therapies become more accessible, uh, more reliable, more reproducible, uh, and, and scale up, we, uh, the economics will change dramatically. And because of the durability of these treatments or persistence of these treatments, the, the, you know, the it, the economics can quickly pivot. And that's what's really exciting me is that we're, you know, we're, we're having clinical progress in solid tumors. We're seeing clinical progress in inflammation. We're seeing clinical progress in tissue regeneration and all these things. So that will continue to play out. Our focus com- is completely on, okay, l- l- let's assume that the dog has caught the car after it's chasing it. What does it do now? We have to make sure manufacturing is ready to, you know, address those challenges going forward. So, yeah. Yeah. No, obviously we play in the in a very similar place. So we're we're very interested in seeing standardized approaches that you know allow for repeatable results that are high quality, high throughput, and low cost. Um, and if we're able to do that, then you can get those realize some of those economies of scale and actually dream of treating type one diabetes or cardiovascular disease, some of those other indications that you were alluding to uh, that are being studied and and seeing reasonably good results in. But knowing that we can never even touch a you know one percent of that patient population mm-hmm. with today's manual processes, you know manual processes don't get economies of scale, unfortunately. That's right. Um, so that's if we built uh, every think, Ford car by hand. Uh, <laughs> we'd still be riding horses. <laughs> that's right. That's right. We're tootling around the Model T. That's right. Um, well, great. We're coming to uh, to to the close of our hour together, and thanks again so much for for spending your time with us. Um, there's a couple other questions I want to kind of finish up with, if you will. Um, and one is to ask you to kind of uh, dust off your crystal ball um, and look forward five years or maybe even ten years uh, to where the industry will be in your view. You know, what do you see, and what are the most important things that we as an industry do to get to that future that you you vision uh, to be possible within that time frame? Yeah, I, I think what I'm most excited about is our engineering capability of, of potency, right? Coming back to that notion that mm. potency is at the end of the day, all that really matters. So pay, potency is driven by durability, persistence, um, access, all those things. Mm. You, you know, our, our tools today are very rudimentary. They're important, but rudimentary in our ability to engineer cells. And frankly, cells don't really like to be engineered, right? I mean, they, they, they tend to sort of reject all the tinkering that evolution has programmed into them. So, um, but set all that aside, I think our ability to understand and turn signals, have a much better understanding of the biochemistry and the ability to use tools like 
synthetic biology to introduce Boolean switches and and if then uh, gates into a cell process. Mm. A large that has largely been limited by the amount of payload that we can get in and that we into a cell, as well as how does it actually persist in the cell? Is it integrating into the genome? So there's been a lot of progress in the last number of years of, you know, are there the safe harbors in the human genome where it's safe to place things? Um, the, the ability to put larger constructs, you know, we're at the we're at the five to 10 to 12 kilobases with lengthy NAAV, why can't we be at 25 or 50? And then you can start to put multiple, um, co- multiple uh, constructs into a cell at the same time. Right. Obviously, with all the transposon CRISPR and all that technology, I think there's a lot of work to be done, but that's pretty exciting that that will become... I think a mainstay of engineering a therapy for a purpose and um, having it much more reactive to the biological environment that it'll ultimately play in. Mm. Yeah, no, it's it's bringing, as you were saying before, we're sort of bringing the disciplines of engineering into biology and being mm-hmm. able to do that at a higher throughput with a larger impact. Um, we'll see a massive changes in the industry. You know, we're just kind of at the very beginning uh, of that of that journey. Uh, the last question I'd have for you, um, for any of our listeners who are, you know, thinking about how to get into cell and gene therapy, or you know, sounds like an interesting field. You know, where are the areas of opportunity for people, for expertise, for uh, skill sets that you see, um, and what what advice would you have for folks working in the industry now uh, that you think will help us, you know, achieve that vision that you just articulated? Yeah, we spent the bulk of our time talking about the manufacturing challenges. Obviously, there's a lot of interesting. Uh, development opportunities in the therapeutic side. There's lots of development opportunities in the distribution, manufacturing, um, you know, services side of the industry as well. So there's plenty to do. I think this is kind of the culmination and the integration. You said it on a little bit earlier that you know we're bringing engineering and biology together, and we're doing really kind of crazy things because of that. So I think that you know if you're in a bio if you're in a biological discipline don't be afraid of engineering if you're in an engineering discipline get to understand the biology you know cross pollinate the the advice I give everybody whether it's career advice or just how to sort of chart your own course is you know stay curious always ask the next question right don't don't you know buck convention it's like mm. duh, why do we do that it's it's act like a 3 year old why 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 <laughs> right just keep asking that question mm. and you know certainly have fun right this industry is full of people who are extremely you know dynamic brilliant people you mentioned some of the other folks that have been on this podcast i mean you know i i i, I sit out there you know i just look at the data coming from these teams and think like my gosh you guys are how'd you guys get to be so smart um <laughs> and then you know have fun and then ultimately remember there are patients at the end of this process this journey yeah. for all of us and if you keep the eye on that prize that we can really transform lives of patients throughout the world it makes it, where else would you want to work? Where else would you want to be? This is the, this is the industry to be in right now. So great party parting message, <laughs> a great party message. I agree hundred percent with that and hope that all the bright, innovative minds that uh, might have gone into software programming or uh, FinTech will come into biotech or, and help us solve these massive challenges. Yeah, jump in. The water's fine. <laughs> have a big impact on patients. So. Thank you again for, uh, for spending some time with us and, and look forward to seeing you hopefully in, in person again soon. Yeah, Jason, my pleasure. Thanks for including me.
Thank you for listening to the Ori Spotlight Podcast. To keep up with the latest in cell and gene therapy and to follow us on our mission to manufacture brighter futures for patients, head to the show notes to follow us on social media or visit oribiotech.com.